Good morning. Uh, my name is Doris Meissner, and I'm a senior fellow and director of U.S. policy programs at the Migration Policy Institute. And I'm most pleased to welcome everybody this morning to this webinar, which we're calling A Bumpy Path to U.S. Citizenship, a Survey of Changing USCIS Practices. We're going to begin, of course, with housekeeping notes. The first is that if you have any technical problems, please email to events at migrationpolicy.org or call 202-266-1929. Next, we have a Q&A that will be at the end of this call, but it's not going to be a voice Q&A. So please type your questions into the Q&A chat box on the right side of your screen and send them to the host or to email questions events at migrationpolicy.org. You can also tweet your questions to at migrationpolicy or hashtag MPI discuss. The audio from today's webinar will be available at www.migrationpolicy.org slash events. And then the report that we're discussing today is available on our website or at a link that is on your screen the title is A Rockier Road to U.S. Citizenship? Findings of a Survey on Changing Naturalization Procedures. The co-authors are Randy Capps and Carlos Echeverria Estrada. Now let me turn to introducing our guests today, uh, the first of whom is Randy Capps, co-author, primary author of the report, and also the Director of Research for U.S. Programs at the Migration Policy Institute. We're also joined by Eric Cohen, who is Executive Director of the Immigrant Legal Resources Center, ILRC, based in San Francisco. And finally, uh, Leon Rodriguez, who is a partner at the law firm SafeHearth and formerly the Director of U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, USCIS, the agency that we'll be talking about to some extent today. So before we get into actually talking about the report, and turning to the uh, uh, guests who I've just introduced, let me give you just a little bit of context for understanding what it is that we're going to be dealing with today. We all know that over the past several years, we have been living a time of exceptional levels of attention by this administration and changes being made to immigration policy. Those changes have touched every aspect of our immigration system. But I think it's fair to say that the focus heavily of the changes and public awareness of the changes has been more with regard to the work of CBP, Customs and Border Protection, and ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, and on enforcement issues in general than on other aspects of immigration policy. But the changes that have been taking place have broadly affected all parts of the immigration service and in other areas that are also highly consequential. Our topic today is an example of some of those other kinds of changes and the broad reach of the changes that have been taking place in recent years. What we're talking about today is naturalization, which is the process by which those who are eligible to become U.S. citizens can become U.S. citizens. The work of naturalization is carried out by USCIS, U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, which is the agency within the Department of Homeland Security whose mission is to administer the legal immigration system. As it happens, it's especially relevant to be talking right now about the work of USCIS because we're in a moment where understanding the developments that have taken place at USCIS are really rising to um, uh, rising into view because of a severe budget shortfall that the agency is facing. And the shortfall is sufficiently acute that USCIS has announced a few weeks ago the possibility of furloughing more than 60% of its workforce. That would mean about 13,000 employees out of a staff of about 19,000. 
And that would happen if Congress does not step in and appropriate sufficient funding to close the gap between its revenue and its expenses. Were that to happen, it would only deepen and intensify trends that today's naturalization report identifies and that we'll be discussing in this hour that we're now launching and the report that we're now launching. So with that, let me move to the speakers and begin with Randy Capps, who will lay out the research and talk about its findings. Good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining our webinar today. And many thanks to Doris for that uh, comprehensive introduction. Uh, I would like to begin by thanking my co-author on this report, Carlos Echeverria Estrada, and also to thank um, Eric Cohen, um, who's the director of the uh, Immigrant Legal Resource Center and on the call today, as well as Melissa Rogers and Sarah Letson for managing the survey that underlies the findings uh, I'm going to discuss in a moment. I uh, need to also thank the New Americans Campaign Naturalization Service providers who responded to the survey, um, as well as the communications team at MPI that brought the report to publication and uh, facilitated this webinar. So by way of background, we've seen an increase in the amount of time it takes to process citizenship applications over the last few years, from five months in 2012 uh, slightly upwards to six months in 2016, then nearly doubling to 10 months in 2018 and 2019. There was a bit of progress in reducing this backlog in the first six months of this fiscal year through March 2020, uh, but that was before the pandemic hit. Now, uh, people have mentioned several reasons why this uh, increased backlog and processing time might be occurring. Part of it is that there were more uh, applications filed during 2016 and 2017, there was a bump in those. Another reason is that there was uh, an ongoing attempt to transform the whole processing system at USCIS from paper forms to an electronic system uh, that failed and uh, created, sort of threw a wrench into the process during 2018 and 2019. Uh, there was also some detailing of staff away from naturalization and other activities uh, to the border during the, the large wave of, of border asylum applications in 2018 and 2019, as well as some detailing staff to new green card in-person applications, in-person interviews that were required for green card applications during 2018. So a number of factors really um, influence this increase in processing time, but the one we're going to focus on today um, where there's been growing anecdotal evidence, but we have something a little bit more systematic to discuss, is the increased uh, intensive vetting of applications and the focus on uh, fraud detection and prevention. And that's been something a little bit new under this administration. So underlying today's findings is a survey of 110 naturalization service providers. Uh, these providers are part of this New Americans campaign. Um, that's a diverse nonpartisan network of 2,200 agencies that have assisted almost a half a million people apply for citizenship. Uh, the 110 uh, service providers included in the study cover 34 metropolitan areas, so it's, it's a nationwide survey, and they assisted applications sent to 52 of the 87 U.S. field offices across the country. The survey was conducted in the middle of last year, and it asked questions about what had changed 18 uh, months to two years before the survey, in other words, basically since the beginning of the Trump administration. Topics included how much scrutiny applications were given, documents required, how USCIS officers conducted themselves. Uh, the questions were about different stages of the process, including before the interviews, during the interviews and tests, uh, requests for evidence, and at the O ceremony at the end. Uh, finally, the questions were developed in consultation uh, with the service providers. So what are the findings? Well, a quarter of the surveyed uh, providers reported before the interview that clients missed those interviews due to late notices and notices sent to wrong addresses. And this has been a long-standing issue at USCIS and DHS more generally, uh, but something that had occurred more frequently in the last year and a half and two months, uh, two years prior to the survey. A quarter of respondents also reported that interviews had doubled in length from 20 to 30 minutes to 45 to 60 minutes, 
And in three offices, they were up to uh, 90 minutes or more. Additional documents were required, uh, and this included uh, documents from state and local agencies, such as um, uh, motor vehicle administrations and police departments, as well as, in some cases, documents that were difficult to obtain from home countries. A third of respondents reported more requests for evidence. These RFEs are formal requests to fill in gaps in applications or gaps in, in information provided interviews with additional documents or written responses. About 10% of providers reported that officers administered uh, the test more strictly, and another 10% uh, reported that officers had called back people more frequently for additional testing. So here's just one example of what a provider said about how USCIS officers are applying more scrutiny. Officers ask leading questions that are unrelated to eligibility. The intent is for denials. In represented cases, we end the interview. But for pro se applicants, um, that's for those that lack legal representation, they inform us that the officers just dig for information until satisfied. And this quote also shows the importance of having a representative, a legal representative who can push back when uh, USCIS is asking more intensive questions. Another couple of examples, uh, one provider noted that uh, officers were asking more questions about, uh, in fact, in some cases, re-adjudicating old asylum claims. One elderly client who had a particularly traumatic asylum story was asked probing and detailed questions about her asylum case. The client broke down during the interview and was told she did not pass. A second interview was scheduled. A third uh, service provider reported that an officer asked a technical question and then asked the respondent to uh, the applicant to explain it and reword it. Have you ever considered yourself a non-US resident on any local, state, or federal tax return since you became a lawful permanent resident? Now, this is a yes or no question, but when asked to clarify and explain what the terms meant in the question, the applicant couldn't do it and was called back for another interview. This slide summarizes among the 52 offices included in this study how many offices had reported changes in the process and what the issues and the obstacles were substantively. So the half, 27 of the offices, there were reported increases in requests for proof of marriage or child support. In about a third of the offices, there were changes in asking more information about physical presence and continuous residency. Also in a third of offices, criminal records and good moral character. And you can see here listed some of the other common issues that arose. In the case of marriage and child support, there were more questions about underlying green card applications with officers asking things sometimes going back years to the actual marriage ceremony and who attended and pictures of the wedding, et cetera. More proof of joint tax returns, bank statements, insurance bills, and other documents. As far as physical presence and continuous residency were concerned, there were questions detailed questions about travel history, including um, the act, exact number of days traveled and exact travel dates, how people were able to afford to travel if they were low income, uh, and in one case, if they had ever returned to their home country at all, which was going far beyond the statutory requirement. Now, under criminal history and good moral character, um, there, just after this survey was fielded, USCIS adopted, uh, officially adopted a stricter definition of good moral character that was also related to an attorney general opinion about removal cases. Um, in the case of this survey, USCIS officers were already asking uh, for more questions about criminal history before the five-year statutory period, three years in the case of those married US citizens, uh, for minor crimes, and minor crimes such as traffic tickets, driving under the influence, and in some cases, asking people for documentation that they had paid traffic tickets from 15, 20 years before the interview. So in conclusion, a USCIS has changed its mission to emphasize more intensive vetting and fraud detection. And this survey suggests that this has led officers to exercise more scrutiny of citizenship applications. This uh, more intensive vetting uh, may, means it takes longer to process each application. It's expensive for USCIS and it has increased the backlog. And it may uh, further confound the application process during the pandemic, which is already in disarray. And with, of course, with the furloughs, it could get worse. 
the scrutiny in this survey, scrutiny was frequently applied in areas that reflect the administration's overall immigration agenda. That is questioning family relationships, and we know that the administration's on the record in supporting limitations on who can get a green card through family ties. Uh, a greater emphasis on criminal history, no matter how minor, and this is very parallel to ICE's much more sweeping priorities for enforcement that includes people arrested uh, for many minor crimes and relitigating asylum claims. And of course, we know that this administration has expressed hostility towards asylum applicants in a number of ways, including official policies. Scrutiny was common across the 52 US CIS offices included in the study, suggesting that this is a change in the agency's culture and mission and the instructions given to adjudicators rather than their individual uh, conduct or discretion. Finally, of course, these hurdles could deter future citizenship applications. They have made the process more difficult alongside the proposed fee increase in September, the possible furlough and pandemic-related office closings. It could uh, lead to a lot fewer be people becoming citizens over the next months and years. Thank you. Okay, uh, Randy, thanks very, very much. So we're going to talk, uh, turn now to Eric. And uh, uh, let me thank you, Eric, on behalf of MPI for asking us to do the analysis on the survey and the data that you collected. Tell us more about your network and the reasons for the survey and uh, what you make of it. Great. Uh, thank you so much, Doris, and thank you to Randy and Carlos and the rest of the MPI team for writing this extremely important report. As Doris said, my name is Eric Cohen. I'm the Executive Director of the Immigrant Legal Resource Center. I'm also an attorney, and for approximately 30 years, I've helped thousands of people go through this naturalization process. And I've really never seen um, the hurdles uh, that, have, that this administration has been putting up. Uh, I've never seen that in my 30 years, 30 plus years of practice. So just a little background about the New Americans campaign and the survey and kind of our thoughts about what's going on. Um, the ILRC leads the New Americans campaign, or we call it the NAC, which is the biggest naturalization collaboration in the history of the United States, working with approximately 200 partners in 21 cities from New York to Miami to Houston to Los Angeles. As this wonderful report notes, the NAC has helped over uh, almost uh, over 470,000 people across the United States complete their naturalization applications. And the ILRC and its NAC partners provide naturalization assistance for free, or minimal cost, meaning that we're uniquely positioned to understand how changes to the USCIS adjudication process impacts immigrants across the country, especially those coming from low to moderate income families. Obviously, we're committed to this work because American citizenship is so valuable and important. In the United States, citizens can vote in federal elections, serve in certain offices, and, and cannot be lawfully deported from or denied entry into the United States. It's never been easy to become a citizen through naturalization. The process is long and rigorous, and the list of eligibility requirements are very extensive. The application for citizenship is now 20 pages long and extremely complex. Every applicant has already gone through extreme vetting in order to first obtain their green card and has to wait three to five years before becoming eligible even to apply for naturalization. During the naturalization process, all applicants have to get fingerprinted, which includes extensive background checks. And unfortunately, right now, our nation's naturalization program is in a state of dysfunction, and UICIS is not adequately, fairly, or efficiently processing naturalization applications. Instead of remedying this situation, the administration's policy has exacerbated a manageable backlogs of nearly, nearly 650,000 applicants, the wait to naturalize has ballooned in some jurisdictions to 18 to 36 months, which are unacceptable levels, and the result is that naturalization applicants and their families are suffering. So I want to address um, Doris's question about why we did the survey, how we did it, and um, uh, what, what, the serve, what our intent was. So since the beginning of this administration, the ILRC and our NAC partners have been observing a trend of USCIS manipulating the naturalization process to make it harder for immigrants to become citizens, throwing more and more hurdles at the process, as this wonderful report shows. 
The process was becoming more difficult, more time intensive, and far more burdensome for many immigrants that, are, that were seeking to gain their citizenship rights. We were noticing this with our 200 partners across the United States. And as we witnessed the ballooning backlog, super vetting processes, and significantly longer interviews, we wanted to find out from our partners across the country what they were seeing on the ground. Was this a pattern in practice or just a few random observations? Well, after we did the survey, we contacted MPI and asked them to do a report. And as the report points out, this is no anomaly. It's pretty much the norm. And for what gain? None whatsoever. Randy gave this wonderful example of how an Iranian woman applied for naturalization. And during the interview, the USCIS adjudicator decided to revisit the details of her asylum case, including the trauma she suffered in Iran. And even though those details were vetted during her asylum interview nine years later, she broke down, as Randy said, and was unable to complete the interview, causing her to be denied. In another case, an adjudicator asked for proof of marriage, even though the couple has children together, and the marriage was already determined valid by USCIS during the green card application interview. These are instances of where they're using precious resources to re engage to vet the individuals rather than to interview to see if they're eligible for naturalization. Essentially, the Trump administration has justified a transformation of USCIS from a benefits agency with a mission of customer service into an enforcement agency with a focus on extreme vetting based on wildly exaggerated ideas about rampant fraud in the naturalization process. The data does not support this conclusion. USCIS continues to prove the overwhelming majority of applications and has yet to produce any evidence of widespread fraud. Now, I want to note two important findings. The report has many, but two in particular. One that Randy mentioned about the doubling or tripling in length sometimes of the interview process, that is unnecessary and not needed in order to adjudicate these applications. And the other is how much more difficult the English exams are. Um, and how much more time that takes and how much more fear that puts in the, 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 the applicant. Um, so those are two instances of the report notes. It's important to note the U.S. Constitution requires con Congress to establish a uniform rule for naturalization, which the executive must oversee and administer. What we are seeing goes far beyond providing strong oversight and good government, however. These trends can only be interpreted as a, as a politicization of naturalization itself from a federal government that is doing its best to intimidate and discourage immigrants seeking to naturalize. Naturalization is a nonpartisan or bipartisan both issue. You know, I've told this story before, but I'm going to tell it again. In 2013, I was fortunate enough to be invited to speak on a panel at George W. Bush's Presidential Library in Dallas. I believe it was one of the first, if not the first public event at the Presidential Library. The event's focus was on naturalization and included a naturalization swearing-in ceremony at which President George W. Bush gave a really wonderful speech. And one powerful moment in the speech, which made quite an impact on me, President Bush told the soon-to-be American citizens, and I quote, in a few moments, we will share the same title, a title that has meant more to me than any other, and I've had a lot, and that title would be Citizen of the United States. Thank you, Doris. Uh, the, um, the examples that you give are certainly um, um, uh, very moving, and um, and naturalization is one of those issues that really does, I think, when anybody experiences it, participates in a ceremony, et cetera, something that is so uniquely American and very much one that is, uh, uh, you know, goes to the core of our values and our value system. Um, but, you know, when you're responsible for a large agency and have to manage the operations of complex processes like naturalization along with everything else, there are always going to be those very compelling stories. At the end of the day, the job of the agency is to do it as well as it can, but it's never going to get it right every single time. 
So in order to try to step back now from that uh, very um, uh, direct, uh, compelling view of what happens to people to what is it like really to try to administer an agency that has to take that into account, but also has to make choices and do its work. Um, we're very pleased to be able to hear from Leon Rodriguez, who did run this agency uh, uh, with all of its challenges. And so Leon, um, could you do that? Could you step back, tell us what your reactions are to this particular set of issues that has to do with naturalization, how you experienced the naturalization mandates and process at USCIS, and then you know, talk to us more broadly about USCIS as an agency, its challenges, and particularly what it's facing right now. Great. Uh, thank, <clears throat> excuse me. Thanks, Doris, uh, for inviting me here today, and, and uh, thank you, uh, Randy and uh, Mr. Echevarria, for the report, and uh, uh, Eric for really placing this all in the context of, of everyday practice uh, with uh, aspiring U.S. Uh, citizens. Um, I want to actually start by uh, saying hello to what I believe to be a number of USCIS uh, employees who are on the call today. Um, I know that uh, this is a time when uh, the agency is uh, going through some uh, real uncertainty. I've spoken to a number of you. Uh, there's a lot of uh, anxiety about the budgetary situation. Uh, one of the things that I really liked to do when I was USCIS director uh, was to, to meet the workforce, was to travel to, to field offices, uh, uh, sit with uh, officers as they were conducting uh, interviews. Uh, and one thing that I particularly remember was actually going to Charleston at the USCIS Academy and participating in a, in a gradu uh, graduation. And I remember the, the admonition of uh, one of the head instructors at the academy to, to the then graduating class uh, was uh, that the, the fundamental principle of being a USCIS officer uh, was the right benefit to the right person at the right time. And what's important about that is that that has always been uh, the culture of USCIS. This isn't something that had to be built in 2017 because it didn't exist before. Uh, it was something that was very much uh, deeply ingrained in, in how officers operated. It was very much my perception. Um, and, and, and so as, as we talk about, you know, is it necessary to do all of these, uh, ask the kinds of questions uh, that uh, Eric was describing specifically and that were sort of captured more globally uh, in Randy's uh, report, the fact is that uh, the workforce knew how to properly vet candidates, be it for citizenship uh, or for any other immigration benefit, long before all of the changes that we've seen uh, in, 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 in the last three years. And so, you know, there's a question, really fundamental question, as to whether all of these added burdens uh, were necessary, and in, in, in a question as to whether those same added burdens have led to the financial crisis now facing the agency. Uh, but let me take some, some uh, personal responsibility here before we go uh, further. Uh, cycle times have been a chronic issue uh, at USCIS um, throughout its, its, its entire uh, existence. And you know, when you choose to emphasize one particular line of activity, it is inevitable that another line of activity may suffer. Uh, so for example, we actually, uh, you know, you'll see the trend line, you know, 2016, uh, there's a sort of a slight step up uh, in, in cycle times during 2016 that would have been under my leadership. And then there's sort of a sharp upsurge in, in 2017. Um, the fact was that even in 2016, the, the kinds of uh, increases in cycle times that we were seeing then uh, was something that was drawing, rightfully so, uh, drawing concern and criticism uh, from um, 
all kinds of, uh, of quarters. And so, you know, I want to be clear that as we talk about how things have gotten, you know, significantly worse uh, since my time as director, we have to own the fact that they weren't perfect uh, uh, back then. That said, um, what we're seeing right now is fundamentally different. And what I also have to emphasize is that we're seeing what we're seeing with respect to naturalization uh, are issues that are being endured uh, across categories of activity at USCIS. So the kinds of uh, increases in wait times uh, for uh, naturalization are being seen as well in green card adjudications. Uh, they're being seen in all kinds of non-immigrant categories. Uh, it's affecting asylum adjudications. Uh, so all, it, it's being seen throughout the agency. Uh, and the question that has to be asked and that has to really be understood with, with some real detail uh, is what is the impact of a number of conscious decisions that not just the leadership of the agency, but really uh, uh, the political leadership all the way up to the top uh, that sits over that agency, conscious decisions that have been made, uh, what is the degree to which those have caused uh, one, the, 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 the inefficiency of these very, very long wait times, but also then more uh, as profoundly the financial crisis that we're seeing right now. So, you know, as we've talked about, um, I think, you know, Randy and Eric talked about some of the examples uh, of, of what we've been seeing. Uh, requests for evidence uh, have been documented to have increased dramatically uh, during this time. We have to break down what that means. If you write a request for evidence, that's officer time that's con con consumed uh, in writing that request for evidence. When you get back to the answer, and you know, we send these out from my law firm every single day, they could be between 500,000 pages each. Those 500,000 pages need to be read. That's additional officer time that's being confused. Uh, when you um, increase the um, ways in which cases can be denied, which is something that has been happened, that needs to be documented, that needs to be justified. Uh, and that too uh, increases uh, officer effort. So these are examples. The uh, use of uh, interviews uh, for employment-based adjustment interviews. Uh, are those, are those really necessary? Do they uh, improve the integrity of the system? Do they really uh, uh, safeguard our national security? That's a fair question to discuss. But the reality is that they add to the activity the agency is doing. And, and what, what needs to be asked now by Congress is, what planning went in when you added all these burdens to the agency? What planning went in uh, as you did that as to what all of the impact uh, is going to be? And one thing that I would note as far as a lot of these changes is uh, the administration keeps losing in court. Uh, they keep getting challenged both on, on a global basis as to these policy changes uh, individually in a number of cases, and they keep routinely losing in court uh, on these issues. Um, so the uh, question, one of the questions is, is this unusual for USCIS? Uh, or is it somehow inherent in the way that USCIS uh, is, is financed? And to, you know, to step back for a second here, uh, to understand, uh, USCIS, about 90% of its budget uh, is fee-funded. It's paid for uh, by immigrants or aspiring immigrants who are seeking, whether it be a, a non-immigrant visa, they're seeking green card, uh, they're seeking naturalization as U.S. citizenship, uh, U.S. citizens. Uh, it comes from uh, the fees uh, that they pay. Uh, and, and they're like a number of other benefit-granting agencies that also charge fees. If you go apply for uh, a driver's license, you pay a fee. If you want a uh, permit to build an extension on your house, you pay a fee. So there's nothing inherently wrong uh, with the fee model. Um, the, the question, though, is uh, what are you actually getting uh, for that fee? Uh, is that fee, uh, and are you delivering the service as efficiently as, and fairly as you can, or are you sort of adding uh, burdens to the system that are unnecessary? 
Um, but you know, there's something about the fee model that um, does um, uh, breed a certain, um, should, it hasn't, uh, breed a certain amount of efficiency into the system because you know, you're bound by what you're able to charge for the service that you're providing. Um, now, what's happened is that uh, for years, and this goes back through the Obama administration, goes back to the Bush administration, USCIS by design ran an annual surplus. Uh, in, in the most recent years before this sudden reversal, uh, it was a surplus going into each new fiscal year between 600 and 800 million dollars. That is now flipped uh, to be a deficit of, of uh, or at least a budget request to Congress uh, of 1.2 billion dollars. And again, uh, it's hard to really attribute that only uh, to the decline in receipts because of the uh, corona pandemic. And it leads to, to really asking real questions as to uh, what burdens are being imposed on the system and what is the justification for those burdens. And one of the things that you'll hear is, is there a threat of fraud? Um, and as, uh, you know, as much as any other activity uh, where a person's whole life uh, depends on the outcome uh, of what they're seeking, uh, certainly, USCIS is vulnerable to fraud. Has there been fraud in the past? Absolutely. You know how we know that? Because the system actually caught it. Uh, the system, well before all of these added burdens that you heard Randy and, and Eric talk about, actually had mechanisms in place, had had them for years uh, to actually detect and capture fraud, including the, the training of the officers uh, who with experience became very effective uh, without a lot of gratuitous questions as we heard described by, by Eric uh, at finding uh, uh, fraud. So, you know, is there this need to sort of vastly incre increase fraud fighting resources? That's a question that really needs to now be asked. Uh, is all of these enhanced fraud fighting resources uh, uh, that have now been uh, sort of added into the system, what are the results? What have they found? Uh, what has actually uh, changed? Uh, because one of the things that we have to take seriously is where is the fraud accusation com coming from? If we were catching it effectively all along and policing it effectively all along, you have to wonder whether in fact uh, fraud is being used as a proxy uh, for a different, more broadly anti-immigrant agenda. Uh, and so a lot of what of the instructions uh, that are now being given, uh, are these really the means of accomplishing uh, this broader anti-immigrant uh, agenda? Um, I want to return for a second to the question about fee funding. Uh, there are activities that are not, uh, that where, where no revenue is collected uh, by uh, USCIS, in particular asylum processing and, and refugee activity. And I think one thing that needs to be discussed, I don't know the answer, but one thing that I think does need to be discussed uh, is whether in fact, those are activities that are part and parcel of our foreign policy uh, and, th and that therefore are a collective responsibility of all of the American people, not just of USCIS fee payers. Uh, and that therefore, at least those areas of activity, uh, perhaps it makes sense to consider having those be tax funded uh, rather than, than fee funded. Um, one question that's been asked is what's going to happen if, if there is a furlough at USCIS and how would you prioritize among areas? Um, I would say my understanding is that uh, if that does happen, it's going to be sort of a straight line reduction uh, in activity across uh, all activity areas. I, that's um, something that I, I think could change. Um, and, and I think that's uh, uh, it's difficult to say that any one more activity, uh, they're, they're all important. Citizenship is of paramount importance. It was important to me. Uh, but the reality is that all of the activities are important and it really, there really should be a solution that funds them all. Uh, and I think what needs to go in line with that is real accountability. Uh, how is the money spent? Where did it go? Uh, what, what efforts have been made to really uh, look at um, um, where the money went, and also where is it going to go in the future to understand an economic model 
for USCIS going forward uh, that's actually going to enable it to do uh, to, to discharge its core mission uh, in a way that is that is fiscally sound. Um, so I, you know I think these are are really uh, challenging uh, times. Uh, I think there's a lot of hard questions that need to be uh, answered by the leaders of the agency. Um, uh, but I am also hoping uh, that uh, in short order, Congress will be able to help them uh, and will set them on, on some sort of stable course for the future. Thanks, Doris. Thank you very much. Thank you, Leon. Um, I, um, uh, we have questions coming in from a variety of places, so we'll get to as many of them as we can. But, um, uh, but before we do so, I want to pick up on this point that you made, Leon, about processes that had been in place and about the agency's mission and uh, efforts longstanding uh, to protect the integrity of the process. Randy, could you uh, review for us the, a point that I think is in the report that has to do overall with approval rates? In other words, we're, we're essentially finding on naturalization much more process and procedure and therefore a slowing down. But at the end of the day, for all of that additional effort, has anything really changed where the approval rates are concerned over time on naturalization cases? Thanks, Doris. I mean, I think that's an important finding from the report. And, 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 and although, you know, Eric has mentioned and we include some examples in the report where there were denials, uh, denials have been in a very tight range from about 88 to 92 percent over the past several years, including the first six months of fiscal 2020. So if they've come down, they've only come down a percentage point at two. It, 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 it means that the fraud detection and more intensive vetting is really not uncovering things that are leading to more denials. It's just creating a more uh, effort on the part of USCIS officers, as Leon mentioned, and, and much more burden and you know, making the process much scarier for the applying immigrants, as Eric mentioned. Okay, thank you. Uh, I'm going to go to uh, a question now. And um, uh, let me see. I, I think that this is a question that perhaps uh, you can answer, Randy, from, uh, and, and perhaps Eric uh, can pipe in. But it has to do with uh, differences across USCIS offices. Uh, is there any information that the practices across USCIS offices is considerably different? Are some more successful in processing uh, uh, during uh, taking shorter amounts of time and interviews that are more to the core issues rather than these uh, uh, more excessive practices? What, do we have any information on that? Uh, yes, I mean clearly there's there is there are variations among offices as we mentioned in the report there were three offices in particular where the interview time was up to, to 90 minutes or more at, at some point during the study period uh, you know compared to among a certain percentage of them an hour or so and among others it was still more like it had been historically at around half an hour so if you just use the metric of the amount of time spent in the interview um, there's quite a bit of variation. Um, I don't have those statistics in front of me, but there's also variation in the backlogs by uh, how, how the average processing time, considerable variation in that by office. We did not systematically review that, that in terms of which offices and why. We, we didn't get inside information from USCIS on why there would be longer interviews, more intensive vetting, and longer backlogs in some offices than others. But yes, there's quite a bit of variation. Okay, I have a question here that I think Leon would, uh, uh, we would want to ask you because you are the most likely to know the answer, and that is, what is the best way to interrogate the value proposition of the programs that have been implemented with the goal of reducing fraud? Is there, for example, uh, a department or, you know, an, an office within the agency that does cost benefits, that does cost benefit analyses of those programs? Um, yeah, there, there are offices in, uh, within, within the agency itself as well as uh, DHS more broadly uh, that look at um, uh, quality and performance uh, in, in, in many different uh, respects. I mean, I, the, the question in terms of fraud fighting efforts 
um, is, uh, you know, what, 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 are, what are they finding? Uh, and, you know, the, if, if the proposition is that um, the existing level of effort for fraud fighting pre-2017 uh, was somehow missing meaningful fraud, then we should see three and a half years later uh, a significantly higher level of confirmed fraud cases. And when I say confirmed, meaning that um, once that uh, individual challenges the finding, uh, that it still stands. Uh, and, and I don't know that we've seen any, any real evidence uh, of, of such a change. Um, in, in, in the, and also just generally looking at whether the denial of cases uh, as a group is being based on fraud or other kinds of, of findings of ineligibility uh, and, and whether that's a really meaningful change. I think those, that's at least one indicator. I think there's a lot of factors that go into it, but that would at least be one indicator uh, that you'd want to look at. Okay, uh, let, let me ask a question of um, probably Eric, you're probably in the best position to, to answer this question. Are there possibilities to dispute illegal denials to citizenship? If so, what's the process and the chances of overturning decisions? Yeah, um, that's a great question. There is a, a both an administrative appeal process, so when one's, when one is denied, they can administratively, uh, administratively appeal it within the USCIS. Um, and, and sometimes there, there are quite a few good results out of that. There often are se more senior adjudicators handling those cases and um, uh, more seasoned. And oftentimes you can win, um, over, overturn the denial. And then if that's um, denied as well, then you can go to the United States Federal District Court in your jurisdiction, very expensive in the sense you're going to have to get a lawyer, obviously, um, uh, but you can go to a federal district court judge and sometimes um, federal district court judges uh, have uh, are really good about looking at all the factors and, and sometimes overturning the denial as well. Okay, here's another question about something we've been reading about in the press. And, uh, and I think you, perhaps you're in a best position again, Eric, to answer it. Uh, given your um, um, working directly on a day-to-day -day basis with this, it's about drive-through and wondering whether the drive-through naturalizations have made any dent in the pending cases. So, what's the extent of drive-through naturalizations? Are these just spot uh, circumstances, or is this a, a much more broadly based re uh, response that the agency is uh, put into place right now to the? Uh, uh, virus issue. Yeah, so uh, the drive-through um, are all about the oath ceremony, which is the very last part of the naturalization process. You've already been adjudicated and interviewed and approved, and then it's a coronavirus response. Actually, um, then starting when 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 the the government shut down, um, there were accumulated between that time and and uh, the beginning of June, well over a hundred thousand people who had gone through the whole adjudication process, um, had been approved, but hadn't had the opportunity to actually been sworn in yet. And, and so the USCIS took um, most of June and are taking most of July, if not all of July, to try to clear that backlog of just the people who had already been approved, adjudicated and approved, and were awaiting um, just their swearing in ceremony. And they've done a couple of creative uh, of, of projects one of which is the drive-through oath ceremonies. Uh, another is very small oath ceremonies because usually there are several hundred people and we don't want people getting the coronavirus, obviously. Um, we, don't, we think they could do more um, through uh, virtual oath ceremonies, but so far they've done a pretty good job of trying to clear up that specific backlog, which is about 100, 110,000 people waiting for the oath. Meanwhile, there's a backlog of, of almost 700,000 um, people who are waiting to be adjudicated. So two different groups of people. Exactly. Okay. Um, uh, here's a question, Randy, that uh, perhaps you can answer. Did the survey identify the extent to which stepped-up scrutiny applied equally to all applicants, or were there any observed variations 
in the treatment of applicants based on race, race ethnicity, or national origin? Yes. Now, unfortunately, since this is a survey of providers um, who assisted people with their applications, it's not a survey directly of the applicants themselves. We don't have that kind of demographic data, so we can't really talk about variations by race, ethnicity, or other demographic factors. Okay, I'm going to move now, Leon, to a question that I think you can help answer, and it has to do, and, and, and from, from the standpoint of your own experience uh, when you were there, could you please discuss efforts to educate the general public on the value of immigration and the integrity of the USCIS system prior to these more excessive efforts? Um, yeah, so, so, so uh, USCIS uh, engaged in uh, a lot of different uh, uh, public education campaigns. Actually, citizenship promotion uh, was, a, was a, a core priority for us, certainly in my, my time. Uh, and so we engaged in a lot of effort. You know, there's, there was an Office of Citizenship, which I think uh, still, still exists there. Uh, we gave citizenship grants to a number of organizations uh, to both uh, sort of promote the choice of U.S. citizenship uh, and then also to support uh, people who were, you know, preparing to apply for, take the test, uh, go through the process. Um, so th those, those have all been sort of uh, a part of uh, how USCIS operated. Um, I will say uh, something that I think, again, in, in, in all the prior directors, Doris, going back to your time in INS and even before, across uh, parties, there's always really been a real strong belief in the value, and, and it's been part of how we've presented ourselves as an agency, how we uh, set up our websites, how we set up our materials, how we gave speeches, uh, the idea that immigration is good for the United States. It's good economically, it's good culturally, uh, it, 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 it's, it's good um, in so many different ways. Uh, and that's something that for years the agency was really able to effectively tell that story, even as it was doing its job of operating the system with integrity, uh, which, which is important, uh, is critical, that, that fraud be avoided, the national security be protected, uh, but all of that can be uh, uh, done alongside to uh, a real commitment to the importance of immigration, a robust immigration uh, to the United States. So let me pick up on that point, Leanne, and ask you the question uh, about the mission statement, because you know there was at the early in the administration a change, a form a change made formally made in the. USCIS mission statement, and it dropped the terminology customer and uh, uh, providing customer service. And apparently there has been just a very a strong feeling among some uh, when that mission statement change was made that the notion of customers is incorrect uh, where USCIS's work is concerned. Can you comment on that? What 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 are your thoughts about that, and uh, uh, and what do you think that the formal change in the articulation of the mission statement uh, 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 may have to do with what we're seeing? Yeah, no, I, I think that the change in in articulation uh, statement is you know is based on this rhetorical line that. The system, and, and I, I emphasize it was a rhetorical line, it's contrary to the actual evidence, uh, that the system was operating in a way that favored, uh, uh, inappropriately favored those who were applying for uh, benefits. That the idea of calling them customers uh, would somehow predispose uh, officers reviewing cases to sort of lean inappropriately in favor of granting those cases, of foregoing some kind of scrutiny. Um, and, and that's just not true. Uh, and, and instead, what, 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 what the word customer meant was is that people needed to be treated fairly. Uh, they needed to be treated uh, with a recognition of what a significant part of 
those individuals' lives the immigration process is, uh, whether it's citizenship, a green card, what have you, um, that, that is as big a day in your life as the day you get married, the day you graduate from college, possibly even bigger. It makes such a big difference in people's lives. And that as an agency, we respected the importance of those events in people's lives, even as we did our job of assuring the integrity of the system uh, and of protecting the system from fraud. That whole notion, that whole view of sort of the nobility of aspiring to immigrate to the U.S., uh, and, and the choice of becoming a U.S. citizen sort of jumped out the window uh, with that mission statement, in my view. Uh, Randy, I have a question for you that has to do with public charge. Is there any way to determine from the survey whether the change in public charge uh, requirements, uh, uh, criteria, uh, ha has affected naturalization? Um, yeah, so it shouldn't because the public charge rule applies to applicants for green cards, uh, not to applicants for citizenship. Uh, people who already have a green card, um, it's, it's called a public charge inadmissibility rule, which is basically inadmissibility for getting into the country or for adjusting status to a green card. Once people have the green card, the public charge uh, rule um, by statute, by law, should not apply. Um, so it shouldn't have any impact, and we didn't really uncover any evidence that it would have any impact on the citizenship process. Okay, thanks. Uh, Eric, here's a question for you. Is the denial of a citizenship uh, uh, I mean, denial of an application for citizenship, how does it affect permanent resident status, if at all? Well, that's a good question, too. It depends on the reason for the denial. So if the denial is it's just because you didn't meet one of the requirements for citizenship, um, you remain a lawful permanent resident and um, you uh, can wait some time usually and reapply for naturalization um, when you're eligible again. If the denial is based on something because you're maybe deportable now, because you've committed some sort of crime or something, you're deportable, or the denial goes at whether or not you were originally eligible for your green card in the first place, then um, uh, the USCIS might refer that case to the U.S. Uh, Immigration Customs Enforcement Agency, and they might decide to uh, uh, pursue a deportation case, a removal case against you. And you could end up losing your green card and being deported in some circumstances, which is a very scary, uh, obviously, process. Um, so, uh, well, you know, one thing I want to go back to real quickly, if I could, Doris, that, that I forgot to add, is that the USCIS did actually miss a really good opportunity to um, swear in those people who, those 100,000 people I talked about earlier who um, are going through drive-through ceremonies and small ceremonies. They could have, during the pandemic, tried some sort of virtual oath ceremonies between in, in April and May, and maybe uh, 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 naturalized all those 100,000 people, and then starting in June, they could have started chipping away at the seven, uh, almost 700,000 um, backlog of naturalization applications. So I just, I, I, I'd forgotten to add that, and thank you for letting me add that. Well, I'm glad you added it because the, we, the next question that I was going to come to had to do with virtual ceremony. So it's been taken care of uh, uh, by, uh, by your addressing it. Uh, unfortunately, we're at the end of our time, and so uh, there are some questions that we haven't been able to get to, for which we apologize, uh, but um, we want to respect people's time and the announcement that we made about the um, duration. I want to thank the audience very much for tuning in, uh, for sending us your questions. I want to particularly thank very much our guests today for uh, talking about this report, for uh, uh, explaining more about the naturalization process, and for uh, helping to shine a light on an area of immigration policy that is exceedingly important uh, and that sometimes doesn't get the kind of attention that it, uh, uh, that it, that it deserves. So uh, let me, for you in the audience, again, draw your attention to the availability of the report. You can see how to get it by the link that is on your screen. 
Uh, it's also available on the MPI website, www.migrationpolicy.org. Uh, the slides and the audio from today's webinar are also available at that same website, www.migrationpolicy.org slash events. Um, that will be up uh, as of tomorrow. And um, do please continue to visit our website for on ongoing research and events and analysis that MPI puts out on an ongoing basis. Um, for any reporters who uh, were not able to get your questions answered, please feel free to call Michelle Middlestadt at 202-266-1910. And with that, we'll close out today. Thank you very much.